0: What is going on, fellow filmmakers and creatives? Welcome to another episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. But before we kick it off, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Brendan Sweeney, Filmmakers Academy member and host of Finding the Frame. And I just want to talk to you about the annual spring sale that we are currently running over at our platform. Are you ready to elevate your craft to new heights, dive into a community where inspiration meets guidance, where camaraderie fuels creativity? Well, picture this. We have monthly virtual group coaching sessions, network events that spark collaborations, and fresh educational content lighting up your screen monthly. That's what awaits you as an annual all-access member. And guess what? Your journey starts now with an exclusive offer. Snag $150 off your first year when you use promo code ARMCAR150 at checkout. It's our way of saying welcome to the family. So why wait? Join us today and unlock the ultimate resource, hub for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers everywhere. And did I let you know that we just dropped our recent masterclass? Filmotechnic Camera Car Masterclass, where Shane Hurlbut ASC and his camera crew of working professionals go inside the arm car, break down what it's like to be a cinematographer, getting that confidence to be able to utilize this specialty tool to get the shot. We hope to see you in the family. We want to see you on the platform. Let's join the community, arm car 150. Check the show notes for the link and enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome
2: to Shane's
1: Inner Circle Podcast
2: with your hosts, Shane and Lydia.
1: Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the February podcast. Shane and I are very excited to be with you this month and have a lot of awesome questions lined up on everything from dealing with difficult people, which I think everybody can relate to, to a few about how to handle tons of information coming your way and not getting overwhelmed. So we are going to dive in with the first question. Take it away, Shane.
2: All right. First question is, first of all, I would love to continue to give you credit and gratefully thank you for changing my views on how I shoot now. Before the Inner Circle, I had no idea how I was going to find the money and time to go to school or an internship program that will teach me everything I wanted to know about the business. Lighting, camera and so forth so I pray you and Lydia continue to grow this amazing group and the years pass well we have that plan both Lydia and I are very passionate about the inner circle and herlbut visuals and and what this resource is how it's helping filmmakers all over the world so we will continue to do it
1: and give it our all
2: exactly and to continue the question as a father to four kids, 13, eight, six, and a four month. This is absolutely a great resource. Now for my question. I'm in the advertising industry for a small market TV station. I constantly work with our account executives here, salespeople, to get together with clients to talk, plan, and organize the image of what they want me to shoot. Just recently, I've been having a heck of a time with difficult AEs, which give me a hard time on how I schedule and how I shoot. Sometimes even taking over as directors and telling me how to shoot the advertising spot, the client, and I, and I already agree I like to think of myself as a nice guy, but when I feel I get my toes stepped on, I feel like I have to stand my ground. It's not easy. What in your way of dealing with difficult people you have to work with? I want to remain professional and stay on task without having to start a negative vibe on set or out of set. I have to say, it's been challenging, and I know you have probably gone through similar experiences before. Thanks, Shane and Lydia, and hope to see you again sometime soon on a movie night. Once again, I like those.
1: Okay, well, I like to think of difficult people as my particular specialty because I've had my fair share of them both within the film industry and as a nurse, in forensics, my background is studying serial killers, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think when you're dealing with really, let's start with the difficult personality and then we'll move into, you know, how do you make it work on set? So when you have a difficult person, I always try to understand their motivation because intention and motivation is everything and it kind of breaks it down for you. So, They could be difficult and angry about something that has absolutely nothing to do with you, but they're taking it out on you just because that's the way that they have with coping. So I think if you understand that it's not personalized, number one, that kind of takes the sting out of it. And then you move on to, okay, and now, how do I wade my way through it? And I think with the objective of having a great shoot and getting all of the content, you're both on the same page because if you can work on or from the lens of, look, we're all together, we're on the same page, we want to make this work, and how can we do this as a team, then that sets up the, you know, so that you're not in a victim mode. And if somebody's being particularly unreasonable, I think it's really important to address that head on and and have the difficult conversation which most people try to avoid. So every the MO that I've seen used is just ignoring it and hoping it'll go away, and that doesn't really work well for difficult conversations. So one approach might be, look, you know, it's, it's obvious you're unhappy with what we're getting or you have some different ideas on shots that you would like to see that are different than what we agreed upon to shoot. So how can we make this happen in the time frame that we have? And then maybe it's changing the collective vision overall. Another approach is, look, you seem really upset about something, and I just want to understand, is it the shoot or is something else bothering you? Because, again, people know that they're upset, and I think sometimes having that difficult conversation head-on diffuses a bomb. In other cases, it makes them more angry, Right. So it's really kind of trying to understand what type of personality you're dealing with and, you know, navigating it from there. So if you're dealing with a more angry type, then it's better just to focus on the work and on getting the best possible solution. So in that case, I would say something like, look. You know, we all want to have a great outcome for the shoot and just kind of ignore their bad behavior and then dive into what are your top priorities? It's constantly focusing it back to as specific as possible, whether that's shots or whether that's, you know, the overall look for the scene, whatever it is. But the more specific you can be with that person and the more granular and detail oriented gives them less to be frustrated about. Shane, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't ever feel like my toes are being stepped on by somebody that might have a great idea. And sometimes those great ideas are something that you really never thought of. Working with Mick G., the one thing he always said is, everyone— I want to, it doesn't matter if you're the PA, the craft service person, if you have an idea and if you have a way to take this to the next level, then I want to hear about it. Now, I will make that idea my idea. That's what he always would say. (laughs) And he, he did that perfectly. But any idea is a great idea in regards to shaking it up a bit. So I never see ideas coming in as getting your toes stepped on. I kind of try to embrace and kind of systematically take apart what the suggestion is and then see if we can still incorporate it with the master plan that you have all put take put together. And I find that by always embracing, keeping a really positive attitude, being able to roll with it and still make your day. And those are the kind of things that that is going to be the powerhouse for you as a cinema cinematographer and as a director. I know that when they, the, the person steps in this, this AE stepping in and saying, you know, I'd like to do this or uh, why aren't we doing that? And, you know, you're not focused on this or that, you know, it's like if he's, if he's coming in and micromanaging how you're shooting and going about there, then I always ask the question of, Okay, so why is he asking that question? Am I going too slow? Am I not doing it correctly? Uh, you know is is there a way to be a little more efficient i I always try to take the outside view as not something as why would you even you know enter my domain? It's more like, wow, this guy's got a, a interesting idea on all this and and obviously he must be feeling this because of you know, some way that I I'm operating. So how can, how can I I look at it? How can this make me better than my toes being stepped on and somebody trying to micromanage me? I'm constantly always trying to, to look at it as a glass half full than half empty. Now, there are those times when you are asses to elbows and you know what the schedule is and you're way behind because of many different things, whether it's mother nature, whether it's uh, you know somebody not showing up on call time and putting you behind, maybe something going wrong, some gear goes down and it delays you. And you're up against it. And all of a sudden, this person comes in and says, Hey, you know, what's going on here? You know, why? And there's some times when I'm like, Okay, you want to do it your way? Let's go right at it. Let's analyze what your way is going to, you know, be. And there's sometimes where <laughs> I've been combative in those situations because the pressure uh, on me is great. And, uh, but then I, I kind of in that combative mode, I always like try to count to 10 before I say anything and then kind of reboot myself and go, okay, okay. So yes, we are under the gun, but what were you thinking here?
1: Okay. I'm pulling the mic away from Shane. It's so funny. So it's not combative, but he's talking about having the difficult conversation and saying, you know, okay, if you want to do it a particular way, how's that going to impact the rest of our day? How's that going to impact everything that we have? So he's still Still listening, but kindly...
2: Yeah, I mean, it's combative in the way that I'm saying, "Oh my god, do we have to deal with this right now? I'm I'm just trying to get through all this." But at the same sense, you know, it's it's listening and taking the time to, you know, see what his or her suggestions are. And the micromanaging, I am a micromanager to the utmost degree. I double and triple check everything. It's the responsibility of a cinematographer. You have to be always checking to make sure everything is done correctly. Even though somebody has said it has been done correctly, I'm always making sure that it is. Because nine times out of 10, you will assume and your assumption always kicks you in the ass. So I I try to really, you know, manage my team in a way that we are all creating this amazing creation to Together, But at the same time, you know, we all have to be held accountable and being held accountable is is doing the job to their best ability.
1: I think one thing I would like to add, because we've heard this from our team and Shane, it'd be interesting to hear your take on this dealing with the creative that is constantly shifting the vision or constantly changing everything up so that no ultimate Direction really happens. And I think that that's a very tricky scenario because, especially with agency creatives, and I'm not picking on them, but just from past experience, you can have a clear vision going into the shoot. And then all of a sudden, it's, oh my gosh, and now we want this and now we want that. And they're heaping all of these changes and they're switching the direction and the plan that you had constantly throughout the day. And as a young filmmaker or somebody without that much experience or somebody with a lot of experience, it's a very challenging uh, position to be put on or in. And I think in that case, the more clarity that you can have about what absolutely has to be shot for that day in order to make the day and getting as specific as possible. And I'd love to hear how you've dealt with it, Shane, too, on set, because that is a really challenging thing. I know Ben on our team dealt with that where it was just like trying to focus in this this creative Um because a lot of times, the more creative people are, the more ideas they have. And that can be a great thing, but at the end of the day, you really need to get specific on what needs to get shot. So, how do you deal with that when somebody's constantly changing it up?
2: Yeah, I mean, this last Pfizer commercial that I did right before Christmas. We had this director that I've worked with since 1998. We are a band of brothers together. We absolutely love the dynamic of working together. And it was a scenario where the client was constantly changing stuff up. We took location pictures. We went specific into the absolute angle of where we were going to be shooting. And I set up the whole shot and exactly what they had signed off on in the pre-pro meeting. Okay and they get to set and the client doesn't like the bougainvillea in the background. They think it's too colorful. So, well, now we have to change 90 degrees. We have to move 90 degrees around so we can't don't show the bougainvillea, uh, but show just green trees. And now the green trees that we thought were there are kind of dying. And, and so now we got to bring in more greens. So the greens department, production design, is racing to get more greens and it revealed now a a playground that we didn't see before so now the playground has got all this color of reds and yellows and blues and now we got to throw camo nets on that and you know do everything possible And, you know, Maurice, our our director is like, you know, I just want to be perfectly honest with you. We are going to do this, but this is going to limit our ability down the road. When we get into this next scenario where we make our company move and we're dealing with the next set, we're just, we're going to be able to take the time to deliver those performances. I just want to make sure everyone is comfortable with that by making this change. And if we are comfortable with that, I'm gonna do it. So it's like, he's a great director that way. He really quantitates it down into, and it's all about knowing your schedule, knowing what you're up against knowing it so well to where you have to be in the next 15 to 30 minutes. And that's a great educated director. That's a reason why we work together so often because I'm constantly – I love working with him because he's very honest and he's upfront with the client as well as he's upfront with the agency on what they're going to get and what they're going to have to sacrifice. And it's not so much losing something, it's compromising and sacrificing for this. So right now he's like, he boils it down so beautifully for the client and the agency. We will do this switch, even though you agreed on this direction and seeing the Bougainville in the background. We will switch this up. It's going to take us about a half hour to 45 minutes. Shane's going to whip it around as quick as he can. We got to get some more greens in the background. We got to throw some more camo back there. We got to do all these things, but understand that all that we have to get at this location, then we have to do a company move to a stage that we're gonna then start lighting because we don't have the size crew to be able to pre-light that next location. So when we get there, we're gonna have to pre-light it and then uh, we're gonna have to shoot it much quicker to stay on time and on the budget. Now, what ended up happening is, sure enough, we get to the stage, and they are micromanaging absolutely everything, and we went two hours overtime. But the producer went to them and said, "Okay, well, this is we're at the crossroads. We're exactly where Maurice said we were going to be at 9 a.m. We're now here at 6 p.m. And we're going to go into two hours of overtime. Are you okay with it? And then they decided to pay for it. So by them paying for it, they understood they didn't want to compromise. And we got exactly what they wanted.
1: And I think, you know, the proactivity and the clarity and communication that Shane described from both the producer and from Maurice, the director... Um, is what ended up making the day feel successful. So you didn't have frustrated people that were like, oh, my gosh, how come you didn't tell me about this from the agency side, right? And this is something that I cannot stress enough because I hear about it from filmmakers just because people talk to me and tell me things. So it's it's the clarity in communication. It's understanding how it's going to impact your day. It's being super proactive so that the agency feels like it's a win-win and that they're being heard and listened to, and that you're not frustrated, because this is where younger filmmakers with less experience sometimes I see get really frustrated or angry in situations like this. And just so you know, that's not benefiting anybody. You may internally feel frustrated and need to breathe to 10 and run outside for a second. That's fine. But you cannot convey that to the agency or huff around or throw things, right? So it's, you know, it's really being professional and... You know, just dealing with the change ups because truthfully, you're getting paid to do that, right?
2: Exactly. You never want to come off as the grumpy DP. And I always hear this from a lot of the other directors that I work with. They get these DPs that just come in, and every time you say, Hey, could we do this? They just start complaining. And they're just negative all day, negative in the morning, negative in the midday, negative in the afternoon, and negative at rap. And you want to be the go-to yes man or yes woman. I I love to say yes. I, I, I don't like telling a director that it's not going to be possible. And if it's not going to be possible, then I try to submit four or five other cool ideas that we could do within our time and what our resources, you know, with the resources that we have. So it's like I always try to create a positive spin, no matter how many changes I embrace them, no matter what the schedule is and the the limitations, I try to work along with it and just stay incredibly positive and try not to be the grumpy old DP. All right.
1: Okay, moving on to the next question. First off, I just want to say what you guys are doing is very special, and I appreciate the love you put into the inner circle. And I just want to say thank you, because we really do love this circle. This is our... Uh, like our third child and uh, we love it and love putting time into it as a developing commercial DP I have found a short list of looks that I generally use on the spot and there is an even longer list of looks that I'd like to develop for the right projects do you have this sort of go-to swatch or are you always creating something new is there ever a time to play it safe in your opinion I'm going to let Shane start off with this one because I know what his answer is going to be hang on
2: (laughs) Okay, here's what I try to do. If you feel that there's a go to swatch or something that you always try to pull from, then it's going to hinder your creativity. Now, you can always go to that same book or that same photographer or that same reference, but it kind of has to be like what I always do is I have a, a large group of reference books. And I, on each film, I like to sit down and just go through those books and they spark different ideas and imagination. So I don't try to go back to the same old swatch or the same old calendar of looks and colors and stuff. I just start because my books are so diverse that the the looks from them can never be the same or repeated. So I try to just start at one side and I just make my way all the way over to the other end. And I try to always... Now, it's great to pull stuff from other movies or other commercials or anything that projects that you've done before that you can kind of repurpose that idea and like kind of tweak it. But you always want to try and repurpose the idea and tweak it. Make it something... Different and and give a unique flair to it. So it's like you want to always try to reinvent, always make yourself uncomfortable, always push the limit. You never want to play it safe. I am not a big person of playing it safe. I I tend to try and jump off the cliff and then I n- try to navigate in mid-flight uh, where I'm going to land. I there's and it's. It creates kind of a, an energy and a passion that really kind of fuels the whole team. Like it's a, it's an inspiration to them to see somebody that's a go getter, that's a risk taker, that really likes to, to change it up. And they're just not coming in and doing what they've always done. So it's really inspiring people by being that kind of fearless. And, you know, I, I I've always had this, but I think when I did Act of Valor, it was a kind of a turning point for me as a filmmaker because I had done many movies within the studio system, and when I did Act of Valor, we had to operate at a whole different level. Not only was I the director of photography, I was the gaffer and the key grip a lot of the times. I Sometimes I was pulling my own focus. I was loading my own cameras, dealing with everything that I had to deal with, as well as I was the transportation coordinator. So I, I was booking our flights, and I was booking our hotel rooms and planning all that. This is something that really got me back down to the core of understanding of how inspiring it is to do movies at that level. Boots on the ground, just everyone is invested in it and inspired. And they were so fearless, both Scotty Waugh and Mike McCoy as directors on this. We were just fearless. They would just take risks that I was like, oh my God, you're going to, what are you talking about? We're going to go down to Key West. You're going to rent this massive yacht. You're going to have Navy SEALs attack it and shoot this whole sequence, and we don't even know if this is funded? You know, these are kind of risks that, you know, you put yourself out on a on a, on a cliff edge with your three to five toes just grasping the edge of the cliff, and they just jumped off of it. And it was awe-inspiring, and it really changed the way I, I make movies in, in a good way, uh, in, a, in a level where, you know, you just really want to try to not play it safe, but to stay uncomfortable.
1: Yep. <laughs> Shane's not a play-it-safe guy. I will say, creatively, I think it's dangerous to play it safe because... Playing it safe is associated with stagnation creatively. However, there are certain times where I think you play it safe with organization and proactive something
2: that's worked before.
1: Yes. So so. Shane and I, even though we constantly want to learn new ways to be organized and we're pushing ourselves and we're learning, this is what I think we both talk about a lot is in terms of teaching yourself something new or trying something new or thinking about it in a new way creatively. However, there are tools that are the go-to organizational tools that we use regularly or we find new ones that are better than the ones that we've been using before and we absolutely try those and implement those and see how it works because the organization, the communication the those other parts of filmmaking other than the creativity you have a set and a standard that works for you and a workflow, and that's very important to keep consistent for your team because then they're able to be more organized and more efficient. So um, one great example I'm just going to grab here um, that I learned about relatively recently was this High Performance Academy by Brendan um, Bouchard. And I'm not sure if you're aware of him, but it's it's essentially breaking up your day into being the most productive that it can be. And he has a one sheet where, you know, he explains this process and then he goes into um, what you need to do to prioritize projects and what you need to do for priorities in your day. And this is something great for pre-production. So obviously that doesn't work on set um, because we all know how it goes on set, but You know, for for pre-production, something to think about the way that you're spending your time and really trying to ramp up your productiveness by 30 percent, by 50 percent, going to these formulas because these have been scientifically studied in the brain. And that's kind of my go to. Um, so check it out. It's, the last name is uh, B-U-R-C-H-A-R-D, and his first name is Brendan, Brendan Burchard.
2: Yeah, and I find that creatively trying to get yourself uh, fired up every morning uh, in pre-production can be, you know, a daunting task because like most of pre-production, you're, you know, going to the production office and then you're hopping in a van for 12 hours while you location scout. So I I try to, or you're sitting in production meetings, or you are sitting in with the production designer and uh, costume designer meetings, or, you know, it's just like a lot of meetings and it's, you really have to stay creative. And one thing that this person uh, suggests is just getting up in the morning and just stretching. And I try to do that as much as I can it's not like immediately go to your device and check your emails and your twitter and your instagram feed but going right to stretching for a good amount of time and drinking a, a you know for 10 15 minutes and then drinking a ton of water to kind of hydrate your body and then you get into these creating your projects and, and basically your your call list is what we would say. It's like what you're going to be doing today, who you got to contact. And from a pre-production standpoint, it can be, okay, do you have to call your camera rental house? Is there some new camera lenses you want to check out? Is there, you know, do you have to get some lists done for production? Do you have to create this or that? And these are the kind of things that you set your day up set all your projects up, who you got to call, and then hit the van. And while you're in the van, you have all this done, and you can have the dialogue with the director, with the production designer, talking about sets and everything. But when they're off doing their own stuff, you can look at your list and say, hey, I got to prioritize and do these things as well. So this is a a great tool to keep you really productive as best as possible when with your pre-production planning and with your finding your look and what you want to research each day and what you want to go forward in and and uh, maybe there's a like in Los Angeles, we have two different bookstores that are based on coming up with genius ideas and looks. One is Arcana Books and the other one is Hennessy and Ingalls. They're both located within walking distance of each other in Santa Monica. And that is my go-to place to, uh, you know, go down there on a day and just lose myself in, in whatever the project is. All right, next question.
1: Okay, moving on. Uh, Hi, Shane. First off, the incredible amount of information you and your team are providing everyone is worth its weight in gold. You guys really helped my cinematography go to the next level. I find myself coming back to the site almost every day to see if you posted anything new. Now on to my question. Well, thanks for that feedback. It really means a lot. Uh, This is Jesus Thanks, Jesus. I've been wondering for a while now, which I'm pretty sure every beginner might be wondering, where do I begin? There seems to be an overwhelming amount of information on the Internet, and it's daunting sometimes to figure out where to start cameras, light meters, color meters, different light fixtures, frost, unbleached muslin, etc. It feels a bit much, and there seems to be no exact curriculum, sort of, or so to speak, that guides our learning experience. Learn this first, this second, and so on and so forth. Hopefully, you can answer my question.
2: All right, Zeus. You know, we have been trying desperately to say, okay, where's your starting point? I have to say, your starting point as a cinematographer would be to understand the tools of the trade, right? Understanding lenses, understanding, you know, digital and film capture, understanding light. And this is done in theory, not so much practical. So it's reading books on theory, studying the masters, Kubrick, Spielberg, Coppola, You know, listening to interviews with these artists to really get inside the head and find out why they make their choices, not how they make their choices. Once that foundation, you know, think about your beginnings as a director or a a cinematographer as a building's foundation, Right. You have to create the foundation, whether it's brick and mortar, whether it's cement, what, you know, whatever that is, it's you got to have that foundation. And that is theory, understanding the masters, understanding why they do stuff, why they choose for the camera to do this and for the emotion to be that that's your base and where to begin. Once you get that foundation, then you can start to build on it. And I started in the grip department because I felt if I was going to be a cinematographer, so much of cinematography is light and shadow. Well, a grip creates shadow. They shape light. And they are responsible for helping move the camera. So those two things are huge building blocks of being a cinematographer, how to shape light and control it and how to move the camera and what that feels for an emotional sense. So that's why I started as a grip. And after gripping, I then moved into gaffing and understanding light Okay, this is a big thing. Understanding light, the quality and the quantity. And that takes a good amount of time to really figure out what light Can I put outside a window that I know I'm going to get the perfect stop coming through the window, coming through diffusion into a bounce? You know, these are things that you learn as you come up the ladder. Now, as a cinematographer, there's other cinematographers that use their gaffer to be this knowledge. They describe the light quality and quantity to their gaffer and their gaffer then makes it happen. They describe the way the light should be shaped and the contrast that you want in the room and your key grip makes it happen. That is something that, uh, you know, I chose to understand all those things so I could then help and assist in the languaging. So I knew what an 18K would do and I knew when I needed a specific light, a lot of times I love it because I have an overall plan and then the gaffer can then add the icing on the cake. That's kind of how I like to work with gaffers and and key grips is the idea is there. And I kind of describe what I would like. And they're like, well, what if we don't do it with your 12 by 20 bounce, but what if we do it with this? And then we'll double diffuse it with that. And then I'm like, Oh my God, I've never tried that before. Yeah, let's do that. And then A lot of times, like on the bad sitter that I did with Eric Forend, uh, this gaffer, you know, he brought to the table this very small, lightweight LED ring light. And I was like, my God, we have a lot of chase sequences at night where I'm not going to be able to create this endless amount of fill and they're running in the forest. What if I put this little ring light on the movie and that will fill his face in. And then I just have the backlight working. Oh my God, this could be amazing. Well, I didn't even go down that road or even think about that till he mentioned it. So this is what I say the Icing on the cake. There's going to be many times when you're going to, you know, need to l- l- rely on the gaffer uh, and the key grip to guide you. But I try to get that foundation in of theory and understanding the masters of what they've done and why they did it. The big thing is the why. Why did they choose to do this? And how did that make you feel? As an audience member, and you want to take that and you want to put that into your mind and know and pull from it. So there's your foundation, right? And then you can work the w- your ladder up of understanding lenses and composition and what this lens makes people feel like and what that lens has a different kind of quality to it and and then camera movement and and then lighting and you know there's there's so there's there's not, I don't think there's one absolute specific way and specific way of curriculum to learn how to be a cinematographer. But I do think it does start with the masters and the theory and understanding all of that. And then I think it's built on shaping light. And understanding composition and understanding camera movement and what that emotionally is to to how it makes the audience feel. And then it's into lighting with layers and the simplicity of just three-point lighting and understanding what that looks like. And then, you know, I mean, we're trying to build a curriculum within the inner circle that, Uh, is attractive to not only people that are starting out, but also the people that are at the top of their field. And this is a daunting task, uh, to say the least. What I do have to say is in the coming months, we are creating this very cool uh, lesson plan uh, these courses that have very specific beats of understanding, uh, and they're like eight to ten really condensed articles that really show you the path. On you know camera dynamics and you know color and mood and tone and palette and there's a whole plethora of them. There's 14 of them that we've created that will hopefully help a, a lot of you uh, beginners really start to steer in in the right direction.
1: And I'd just like to add uh, in closing on this question because it's a great question. Jesus and I think a lot of people relate to the notion of feeling overwhelmed. And you have to get yourself out of the overwhelm because I think what's happening is you realize how much you need to know. And it kind of hits you all at once because if your brain is in overwhelm, you're not learning anything. It just shut it's in shutdown mode. So it's really important to prime your brain to learn. And the way that you do that is, um and I, I've talked about this a little bit before, but I don't think I put it together in this way. You really have to clear your brain first before you sit it down and, and get it ready to learn. <laughs> and you do that by meditating, by quieting your mind, because what I see so often is that people waste so much time searching things on the internet. And we all know that the quality of the information out there is terrible a lot of times. So you're just, you know, you're trying to learn everything you can with the right intention, and you're just wasting a ton of time looking at information that doesn't really propel you forward in any way. So as Shane said, study the masters whenever I want to learn Anything new. I want to understand who, who did it the best? Who is a true master in this field? And you go right to the masters, the quality information, you kind of wade through all of the rest of it because that's where the gold is. And then you, you really try to do it in a time when you're fresh and you're open to learning and you're not just completely shut down with having spent five hours in your, in front of your computer watching, you know, 20 videos and not really sure what's next. So focus yourself. And then for our daughter, for example, who is learning the craft of acting, you know, she was very smart in this way because she's super focused. And she said, Dad, you know, list the 20 movies that I should watch as an actor, the 50 movies, whatever you think are really the masterpieces. And she very methodically went and watched every single movie. And then now that she's in school for acting, she has to read so many plays. And again, these are these are masters that she's learning and reading. And but there's a very methodical way of doing this. You know, you make yourself a list and you set it in your calendar and you meticulously check off these masterpieces. And that's how you track your progress. Because if you just stay in overwhelm and just keep researching things that may not be the greatest quality, then you're going to stay stuck. And I read this great thing about people leave a class and they have the greatest of intentions, but they ultimately don't move forward. And the reason that they're not moving forward is because they are not changing the way that they're doing something. They're staying in the same habits and the same patterns and the same way that they always do something. And and their environments are not changing. And Jim Bunch um, is a fabulous researcher of environment. And I really encourage you to look at his work. But because he describes this whole process and he talks about the importance of your micro environments and how they impact your learning. And it's based on brain research again. And I think if we understand the way that our brains are wired and the way that we learn best, what type of learner we are, you know, and the way environment impacts our learning, then you're going to really propel yourself forward. So look at the work of Jim Bunch and look at the way that he you know, looks at environment and how it impacts your learning.
2: Awesome. Next question. Hey, Shane, I hope you're doing good with Lydia. Well, we're doing just fine. (laughs) Uh, You both inspire me a lot every day. My question is about what type of gear do you think is the most important to invest in? And when you're doing solo to indie level shoot, that will up both uh, by workflow and enable me to be as creative as possible, meaning tools that can multitask, I guess. Anyway, if you had to start from scratch now, what would you be investing in? Thank you for your time and passion. It's truly a blessing for me as a cinematographer. Jacques from Montreal. Oh, my God. I love Montreal. I love that city. I shot two movies there, and uh, the people, the culture, the city, uh I think Lydia and I, you and I would move there if it wasn't for the eight months of
1: weather, <laughs>
2: weather, blazing co- cold weather. We actually went there to have a creative, like wonderful relationship.
1: Anniversary getaway.
2: Getaway last year in October after I finished Adventures. And we were there for like two weeks and just, just suck that whole city in and and the culture and the people and and it the was
1: architecture we just, oh, love it
2: architecture and the art it was just a amazing amazing place all right on to your question i'm going to just tell you i've made so many mistakes coming up the ladder in regards to what i choose to buy um, that i i think you should learn from my mistakes and i bought lights i bought cameras I bought, you know, Cable. I bought grip gear. I bought a fuel truck uh, to be able to fuel up the transportation department. Why the hell would I buy that? Um, you know, it's like why am I buying a fueler that was eventually stolen from me? Uh, you know, it's like oh my god, the the things that I that I bought
1: were a good idea at the time.
2: Yeah, exactly. So here's what I'd have to say: starting out as a as a filmmaker is if you're starting out as a cinematographer, you want to invest in your tools that help you be a great cinematographer. And that is meters. So you want to have a light meter, you want to have a color meter, and you want to have some kind of still camera that will take it, that you can learn to compose with, that you can constantly be challenging yourself and shooting pictures and, and shooting just, uh, you know, experimenting and keeping your mind just completely open to creative ways. Those are great investments. Okay. A good still, f- uh, camera, you know, your Couple meters
1: len-
2: and then, yeah. And then you want to invest in glass. I invested probably $60,000 in HMI lights where I should have taken that $60,000 and invested in glass because those HMI lights ended up going out of style. The ballasts were these weird light maker ballasts because at the time that was the only flicker-free ballast. Those aren't even used anymore. They're considered an absolute disaster. So that means the light's no good. And the uh, LTM PAR that was the nomenclature and the go-to light is now no more. Now it's the Arri M series. So just like camera cameras kind of go out of style within six months, lighting does the same, Uh, where their manufacturers are always trying to improve their products. And with that, it's not as drastic and as quick as six months. But those lights became, you know, ballast made them very, um, you know, Incompatible with everything else on the market. But with lenses, they really never become incompatible. I purchased some Zeiss Super Speeds now that I made all my bad decisions uh, when I was a gaffer and a grip and first starting out as a DP. Now I'm buying glass and I bought a whole slew of the old Leica R's and adapted them uh, for my still cameras so I'm out there taking pictures not with Canon L series but with the old style Leicas and really loving the feel of those. And then I went out and, and invested in the old Zeiss Super Speeds that I had shot many music videos with. Had them rehoused, remarked, retuned, and that uh, those are my investments. I'm working my way up to want to be able to invest in some cook lenses that I always shoot with or some Leica Sumacrons that I really like the Sumacron C, but investing in glass is where it's at. And uh, also investing in your meters, you know, that build that foundation as well as the still photography camera. So you're able to go around and just play around with composition and play around with light and shadow and all that. Those are the the building blocks of what I would invest with starting out now after I made all those mistakes.
1: And I think anything that is versatile. So, for example, if you have a still camera and some glass, then you can take that on a location scout to do photos. And so it's about the versatility of your investment versus, as Shane described, if you invest in something huge, then you have to figure out where you're going to house it. You know, think about travel. Think about mobility. Think about multi-purposing um, in whatever you invest, just from the business perspective, because then you know it's always a win-win. Okay, moving on to the next question. Um, this one is anonymous, but it says in his career-building section, part two, Shane wrote about this quote: "If you do not set the standards high, then just be get just getting by will be what you get." Don't be afraid to call them out when they make mistakes either. This is very important. There are times when you might have to pull them off to the side and do it under the radar. For some mistakes, this course is absolutely the right way. But sometimes it's important to make a team member an example of what not to do, end quote. Could you maybe describe this with an example? How did you do it? Which mistakes were made? And how direct criticizing and upset, disappointed have you been? What did you say and what were the results of this? Thank you very much.
2: This is a great one. This was uh, in a section of a, uh, we took this career building kind of thing and and uh, I described this so uh, what uh, the person I'm describing is our, our crew members right so and so let me kind of uh, boil this down into a scenario Okay, we're doing camera tests on the adventurers. And we had a laundry list of uh, tons of tests. We started outside, uh, creating all these different looks and, and lighting scenarios outside. And then we moved inside to be able to create all the different looks that I thought, uh, based on the locations that we had seen, uh, what I'm going to have to create. And one of those was under sodium vapor lights Out in the street. And I wanted to use true sodium vapors that we would be under because I wasn't going up and changing all the sodium vapors and turning them off and rigging lights to them. I wanted to embrace this urban feel for this film. So when we got up there, I, you know, I said, okay, we're, we're moving on to sodium vapor lights and I want uh, to make sure that everyone understands that these lights are not movie lights, that these lights, when you unplug them, they will not turn on for 15 to 20 minutes. They heat up and they do not restart. They do not restrike. So I just want everyone to understand that when we use these lights in this scenario, I want to make sure that each light has three to four to sometimes five extension cords on the light. So if we do strike it and it's not in the right place, you have plenty of extension cord to be able to move that light all over the place to be able to, you know, so the light doesn't go off. Because the minute the light goes off, then it takes 15 minutes to restart. So I made this very clear to everyone on my crew and everyone heard it camera heard it you know lighting grip all my operators everyone did because a lot of times you're on the set and the way i communicate to my team is we're all on communication headsets everyone can hear what i'm asking as well as the operators can then work with the electricians and the gaffer to move lights that are might be in the frame or off to the side so everyone has to be in this conversation because by moving a light that might be in frame could quantitate the guy just unplugging the light and moving it. Well, that is what happened on the test. So I had I had talked about this, uh, then we went and we started lighting this sodium vapor scene, Uh, At night for my camera test, so I could design a LUT for what the sodium vapor vibe would be on the movie. So I'm building my LUTs while we're shooting this. And, you know, we had this 50 watt sodium vapor bulb that was mounted into a China ball, and we were tracking with them. So I had it on a painter's pole, and I had the China ball, and we were tracking with the talent on this test. Well, we went. We we did that the we were setting it all up and I said you know that background's not looking so good let's turn around and look this other direction because there at least is some sodium vapors in the deep background there because we came out and we were setting it all up before night fell and then when it we thought we were going to be looking this direction and what we realized is it was much better looking another direction so I was and let's just turn around and we'll shoot this direction well one of the electricians just Unplug the light that had been on for 15 minutes uh, when we said we were going to turn around. Now, right then and there, there's two ways to go about this. You can take the guy off to the side and tell him, okay, dude, we had a conversation about this, you know, or you can make an example of him. And I chose at that point to make an example. And the reason being is is because I had made it a huge statement before we even started it. If I had not done that... Then I would have taken him off to the side and said, okay, you guys got to, you got to understand the sodium vapor lights. They're not movie lights. You can't just unplug them and plug them back in. We're going to wait now 15 to 20 minutes. And we didn't have another one, right? So it's not like we can say, okay, bring in the cold one and plug that in. No, this was a test. We weren't sure what direction we were going. So we didn't have multiples of things. So I called him out on set. And I made an example of him. Now, did he feel incredibly bad? Yes. Did everyone see the example made of him? Yes. Did we ever have that mistake again for the next 86 days? No. Okay. This is very important. What do you got to say, Lydia?
1: Well, and it's not... It's not humiliating the individual no, not in at front all. of it, because I think this is really important to clarify. When you say called him out in front of everybody, there's a way to do it with love and with humor and not to make the guy feel like the biggest loser on the planet. But there's a way to cement it Because of the gravity of the mistake, because of the time wasted, because of the money wasted, because of all of that.
2: Exactly. And I try to keep the set as light as possible. And even in this moment, I made it as a humorous thing. I was like, you got to be kidding me. You unplugged the light that's supposed to have five extension cords when we were just going to turn around. You chose to extinguish the light that will not fire back up for 15 minutes, you know? So it was like everyone <laughs> laughed and everything, but the, the guy knew he failed. Now here's another example, uh, on our workshop that we did in November, I had one of our interns moving, uh, a, you know, we were bringing all our lights out in the morning and, uh, to stage them for our day exterior, you know, training, And, uh, this one, uh, intern rolled our M one of the M forties and the stand snapped off at the head and the light just pummeled down to the ground and, you know, basically destroyed itself. Right. And then like 15 minutes later, he dropped something else. Well, at that point, I called him out. I made him example in a very funny way, calling, you know, this person stone hands, because everything he touched basically exploded or blew up or shocked, whatever it was, it was, you know, the, the man's hands were made of stone. And. You know why I called him out as an example is he was moving a little way too fast in the beginning and that's why that light came off the, the stand and sheared and broke itself on the ground and he was moving too fast when he was wrapping the metal halide light he wasn't thinking about the making sure that all these things were connected and he just dropped it from 15 feet so it's like you know taking the time understanding that yes we're all on a schedule and we have to move fast, but it's also moving intelligently fast and taking the right parameters to be safe.
1: Agreed, because safety is everything on set. And the one thing I will say is that doing this in a loving, humorous, kind way is much better than just not ever getting a call. From somebody again. And I think, you know, the standard MO in the film industry is that if you mess up, you just don't get called back to work again. And I think Shane's way of doing it so it cements it in your mind and it's funny and you won't make that mistake again, but you will get the call again because you're given another chance um, is a very, very wonderful thing versus just not saying a word and and it's kind of like having the difficult conversation but in a really humorous way and so you know be aware of that um if you're a team leader how can you find your way of doing it to really give somebody another opportunity because mistakes happen it's not so exacting and shane has something else
2: yeah, and, and uh, let me describe a moment where you take the person off to the side of the set and not make them an example. A lot of my operators sometimes they are, you know, because I try to keep the attitude and and uh, and the energy on set very light, and we have a really good time, and we know that there's tons of stress, and I try to keep it light in the way that we're always jibbing each other and jabbing each other, and you know, very sarcastic and all that kind of stuff. But there's sometimes where that energy uh, can get out of control. And um, so, you know, an operator was talking a lot and making a lot of jokes and everything while the actor was coming in and, uh, you know, trying to get into their a performance. Now, I am not going to call that person out in front of everyone with the actor there and and with what's going on. So I'll say, you know, over the comms, I'm like, hey, you know, um, Bob. Bob, you know, hey, could you see me over by the monitors and I'll make sure that we completely go off comms and I will talk intimately with Bob about, hey, guys, you know, Bob, we need to keep it really You know, quiet when the actors come in. I mean, I know that, you know, you guys were telling jokes there and we like to keep it light, but we really got to focus and I really need your concentration and, uh, your, uh, excellence and let's just keep it really down. Let the actors focus and, and let's, uh you know, knock this out. So that's something where taking the person kind of to the sidelines and just, you know, re reiterating what, you know, I talked about maybe two or three or four weeks prior in pre-production of how I want the mood and the tone on set to be very light, you know, energy, you know, um, joking, you know, slamming each other and everything. But when the actors come on set, we are focused, serious to the nines, ready to go, and letting them block and rehearse and 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 be completely focused.
1: One last thing on this question, and boy, I can't believe how fast everything's gone here.
2: No, I know
1: we're already at the end of our time, but I just wanted to add: there's an etiquette on set, and those of you at a high level obviously are very aware of this and it may seem redundant but the the one thing that could apply to everybody is that The professionalism and the manners and those things today that seem to have kind of gone by the wayside, little touches, little just observations that you make. How's that person looking? They seem stressed. All of these things, you know, I find that a lot of times Shane has to teach because with younger people today, um, it, it they're just as not in tune and aware of it, I don't think, as our generation. And it's not a criticism. It's just something to be aware of. It's the, you know, noticing what the etiquette is, noticing how people are acting, picking up on the little subtleties in the way that they're behaving and the way that they're communicating, um, saying thank you to the crew and to other people that you work with. Because, you know, you may or may have not learned that from your nuclear family. And it's something that really matters. It matters to actors, it matters to directors. Um, I'll let Shane kind of round this off because he's grabbing the mic from me, but just be aware of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, something that I learned very early on, uh, was that it's, you need, first off, the crew were all working and collaborating at the same level. You're not up on a pedestal, up on this mountaintop you know barking orders down to the to the minions uh, and the peasants okay you are all in this together all at the same level equally everyone has their own incredible creativity and incredible skill that's going to take this project higher So you want to continue to always thank them for their excellence. And uh, at the every day, at the end of even at lunch, like I'm, I'm the kind of person like, you know, at the end of a shot or an end of a scene, I will say, my God, this. Uh, pre-rig team just came in here and rocked it out this light. You know, you know, Martin, this light is unbelievable that you created in here. And the the way that dolly moved and the way the, the movie, Chris, you rocked it out. I mean, I always try to showcase the skills of everyone, not just at the lunch, not just at the end of the day, but throughout the whole day to really get fired up. And I Recently, you know, I worked with Andy Lau, who is this incredible actor on uh, Adventures. And uh, his assistant came to me a couple days ago. We were down on the set with him. He was shooting in Los Angeles. And he, and the assistant said, you know what we love so much about Shane is he, is always behind the, the, the monitor or behind the lens. And he's so fired up about the performance and, and, uh, getting that shot to be the best and, and saying like, Oh my. God, that was unbelievable, or it just, she said it just pumped Andy up to just constantly deliver his very best, and that's one of the top, top actors in the world, world. and this is the kind of energy that you want to create as an artist. It's the energy that you want to create that inspires a crew to, on the 17th hour, take the hill, no matter what it does takes and take it with safety. And you know what I'm saying? It just, it really inspires your team to do whatever it takes for the greater good of the project and, and leading with passion, leading with desire, leading with, uh, with, uh, caring and, uh, humor and, um, a sense of, of uh, the greater good being much bigger than yourself and kind of pushing yourself off to the side and knowing that it's such a team effort. And without every single individual, this would never be possible.
1: Well, amen, Mr. Hurlbut. I'm gonna. I'm going to, I don't know what else I could possibly say after that. So... uh I think you understand how passionate we are about this topic, about this podcast. And sadly, our time is already up. I feel like we just started. So um, we have more questions in this area that we did not get to. So stay tuned for those. And we just wanted to uh, remind you to give us feedback, to keep questions coming, to let us know what you think, what you think about the inner circle. And also to do an ask, because we don't normally ask you for things, but we would really like to ask you to spread the word to people to keep this wonderful group going and growing. So tell your friends if they don't know about the inner circle, tell colleagues of yours on sets. It's just we have such a vision for this, but um, it's like the little engine that could. We need to keep going and growing, and we need your help to do that. So,
2: Absolutely.
1: So I just wanted to do the ask as part of my 2017 intention. And we're so grateful. So thank you so much. The more, the, the bigger the community, the more we can provide because we have the resources to do that. So um, that's the reason. And we wish you a wonderful rest of your month. And we will both talk to you in March.
2: All right. That concludes our February 2017 podcast. Take care. If you're looking to challenge yourself, if you're looking to become a better filmmaker, as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience, go to shanesinnercircle.com.
1: Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com.
2: Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities. Everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.